Thanks, V, and good morning to all of you, and especially if you're a guest with us this morning, a special welcome to you. Make yourself at home in this place. I hope you do feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and the warmth of brotherhood and sisterhood here at Trinity South Naperville. Well, as we get into the message for this week, as uh, Vendetta said, we are in the third week of our You Pick series. Where did this weird series come from? It came from a little poll we conducted on Easter Sunday morning where we threw a bunch of hot potato questions out to the entire congregation across all four of Trinity's sites and asked them, which of these would you prioritize and would you like to hear about on a Sunday morning? And so our sites came back with some feedback. This one was one of the big hot potatoes. What is it when the Bible just doesn't make sense and seems to have contradictions in it? And in fact, when you talk to people about the subject of the Bible, not just Bible passages themselves, but the idea of the Bible, when you talk to people on the street about the Bible, you may hear some of this conversation. Well, I've heard that the Bible's full of, com of contradictions, so how do you reconcile that? Because if the Bible has contradictions, how can we really trust it? So let's dive into prayer together before we get into the Word and just take a look at the subject today. I'd ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to step back and to take a look at the Bible as your great love letter and one in which you've expressed yourself through a whole bunch of different people. And in doing so, you've allowed for some creativity that might be misconstrued. So we ask God that you help us approach this topic, this subject with an open mind and an open heart, realizing that there are parts of the scripture we may not yet understand and parts of the scripture that we will never understand. And that that's okay because you are a God who is in charge. You're in charge of us. You made us. You're in charge of our hearts. You gave them to us through Jesus. And so as we dig in here, let us not be afraid to ask the question, when the Bible seems to have a contradiction, what does that mean? So be with us now, God, in this time in the Word, and let it be for your glory and for your honor. In your name we pray, and together we say, amen and amen. Well, I want to draw a, 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 your attention to a particular scripture that I love, and this scripture goes way back in the history of the church as a way to address what Scripture is for and where it came from. Take a look at 2 Timothy. By the way, if you need help remembering Scriptures, sometimes when the numbers align in the Scripture references, it's a good memory tool. Now, you guys may know John 3.16, right? What's John 3.16? God so loved the world, and et cetera, and so forth. He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him. Right? So this is 2 Timothy 3.16, and I would suggest this scripture is equally as important as the one in John. It says, all scripture, not some scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for four main reasons, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness, not ours. God's righteousness so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What this does is it shows us the purposes of Scripture and the power of Scripture as God takes it and use it, uses it in our lives. 
But as you get into the study of Scripture and start to look at the Bible stories and then go deeper and deeper into some of the letters that were written, some of the stories that were told, some of the illustrations and poetry and history and wisdom literature and all that, as you dive in, you may have the opportunity to find some bits and pieces of Scripture that seem to have contradictions in them. Now, what does that mean? That means when the Scripture describes something in detail, and then another part of Scripture comes along later and seems to be different from that, of providing you with a conundrum. Which one do I believe? Which one is true? Which one is correct? And in fact, particular today, we're going to take a look at a story from the New Testament where Jesus is healing a man uh, who was born blind. Um, and this particular story in Scripture is listed three different places. And for those of us who are Bible scholars in the room, I just want to go ahead and put up the references on screen. They are Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, and the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. What you're going to find is the same story listed in each one of these places in the Bible, but you're going to find some differences among them. If you've got your phone and you're finished checking in for the morning and you want to pull up Version, which is one of our favorite Bible apps, and you want to pull up one of these versions of the story, then you can kind of track along with the differences. The story basically is like this. Jesus is traveling around Jericho and encounters a man born blind and heals him. And the guy goes away seeing for the first time. But as you look at this story in these three different passages, you see variations among them. For example, in Matthew, the Bible says that Jesus is leaving Jericho. <clears throat> and in Mark and in Luke, you see that Jesus is entering Jericho. Now, let me ask you a question. How can Jesus be leaving Jericho and entering Jericho at the same time? Isn't that a contradiction? Uh, further on in the story, in Matthew, Jesus comes up upon two men who are unnamed, two random men who are blind. In Mark, he comes upon one man who's named Bartimaeus, which the Bible describes or, or explains as the son of Timaeus. And then in Luke, he comes upon a man who is unnamed. In Matthew, the men born blind call out to Jesus in this way, Lord, son of David. And in Mark, the man says, son of David. And in Luke, the man just simply says, Lord. And then in Matthew, when Jesus performs the healing and makes the person see for the first time in his life or in their life, in Matthew, there's an unspoken healing. The Bible just says he healed them. But in Mark and Luke, you've got Jesus saying something before or as he does the healing. And in Mark, it specifically says, go, your faith has healed you. And in Luke, it says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you or made you well. So as you look at these three different renderings of the story, you might be tempted to ask the question, which one is right? Why are they different? And can I really trust a Bible that renders a story in three different ways with three specific different sets of details? In fact, as you look at those three 
And as you dig and you find others like them, you might be tempted to doubt. Doubt that the scripture has the reliability that the church says it has. And that might lead you, if you've placed your faith in God and placed your faith in the veracity of the scripture, the applicability of the scripture in your life, applying it to your life, it may cause you to regret having done that if you found what looked like mistakes in the Bible. Um, the idea might be coming across your mind, well, wait, if these guys who are listed as gospel writers, if they don't agree, then what hope do we have? Now, that might come from the misconception that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were sort of like a band, like the Beatles, <laughs> that they hung out together and had like focus group sessions together. They didn't. They had very separate lives. And even though they might have rubbed elbows at some point and some time together throughout their journey around following Jesus, many of them just didn't have conversation. But what we found with them is that Jesus interacted with them either in person or through the Holy Spirit by placing them either in Jesus' presence head on or by placing them in the presence of someone who had been in the presence of Jesus, an eyewitness, the Bible would call them. Now, what I want to suggest to you is this. The Holy Spirit has written the Bible through a bunch of different people for a number of reasons, which we'll get into this morning. But what you're going to find as you study the scripture is that ancient Bible writing and history capturing techniques are not as stringent as they are in modern times. When writers would capture some event in history, they didn't necessarily capture it with the same level of scrutiny that you and I might capture it in these days and times. For example, and I just want to give you a quick example. This is an actual photograph. If you're listening by podcast, this is a photograph of actual Jericho, today's Jericho, which for those who are here, you'll see the more modern buildings of Jericho over on the right-hand side of the screen. And superimposed on this picture is an artist's rendering of what the original Old Testament Jericho looked like on the place where it once stood. Now, what happened to Jericho? Go back in your Bible history and Talk about that for a second. What happened to the original one? Kingdom of Israel marched around Jericho and tooted their horns right a certain number of times. And at the command of God, they blew their horns. And on the last day, what happened? The walls fell and they were conquered. That city of Jericho was laid waste, right? But what's interesting is that if you were to see both of these versions of Jericho today, you could specifically be leaving the site where ancient Jericho was while you were doing what? Entering modern day Jericho. You see that? And in fact, if you go back in Jesus' time, Jesus' version of Jericho, the town of Jericho, was about two miles away from the original Old Testament Jericho site. So Jesus could have been leaving Old Testament Jericho while approaching his modern day Jericho at the same time. Do you see how this works? And so the gospel writers are not wrong, are they? 
They're simply approaching the fact from two different perspectives, aren't they? And in fact, if you take this mindset, take this perspective and kind of plot it out across all the contradictions you might find, uh, purported contradictions you might find in Scripture, you will usually find a plausible explanation. Now, some you don't. Some simply call us to faith. But many of them, if you dig deeper, you'll find that there's evidence to the truth of that. This is the same site from a different perspective. Basically, it's overhead. And I'm circling the same spot for you. See how Old Testament Jericho is just a big pile of dirt with lumps in it? And then as you get into modern day Jericho that has the buildings there on the left, but you can see that spot where they could have had folks leave old Jericho and enter Jericho at the same time. The truth is this, the fact is this about scripture. Contradictions prove that there was no real collaboration among those who witnessed and then recorded the actual events of scripture. Here's what I mean by this. Even though you might be tempted to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were like the Beatles and traveled around in a bus, writing their gospels together, that was not true. They were separate individuals with separate lives. And the Holy Spirit conveyed to them through memory and or conversation what we read in the gospels today. And in fact, when you find differences among the gospels, what we're saying is this, finding differences among the gospels actually lends more to its credibility and makes it more believable. The reason is, is because if you find a bunch of people writing, a, a capturing some kind of historical snapshot of something that happens, and the historical renderings that they write are exactly the same, then you might be tempted to think they did what? They copied off each other, like copying off each other on a third grade math test. If everybody in row number three has exactly the same answers to the math test on questions one, two, three, four, and five, then you might be tempted to believe that either your students have had an epiphany of smartness or they've been looking over each other's shoulders and they haven't really interacted with the subject matter themselves. Do you see how this works? And so is it possible that God allowed variations in the scripture in order to build a case for how people see what happened in history and yet build more of a case for how reliable the Bible actually is. Now, I wanna put this to the test. I wanna show you an event and then I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about how you might represent it. Watch this. Now, if you're listening by podcast, you didn't get to see that. That was basically a scene of, of my sister, my wife, and my two smallest kids feeding a giraffe on our latest trip out west. And some of the coolest parts were slowed down in slow motion. Wasn't that awesome? It was almost like Hollywood. 
right? But the question is this, what exactly did you see? What did you see? Every single person in this room would give a different rendering of what they saw happen, right? But what if the key parts of what you saw aligned while some of the details around it were different? Would you then go back and say, well, that really didn't happen. Heather really didn't stick lettuce out and that weird black tongue from the giraffe didn't come out and wrap around it and pull it away. That's why I did slow motion. I thought that was cool, right? Would you say that that wasn't true? Not necessarily. You might just say that it was true, but from a certain specific perspective, right? But in the end, what was the point of the video? That they fed giraffes, right? What about the healing that happened around Bartimaeus? Was there one person or two? If there were two people and one of them was Bartimaeus, then is the story still true? Yeah. It just happens to be that he was included in a couple of people in the first story and not included in the second ones, right? What if he said, uh, Lord, son of David, does it mean that he didn't say son of David? No. It means that he might have said Lord in front of it, but you know, maybe the second person didn't remember that or didn't hear that. It's still true. You see where we're going with this? Contradictions in and of themselves, as you approach them, make you kind of step back and ask the question, what is it you're looking for? When you're looking for variations a la contradictions in scripture, are you looking for a gotcha moment? Are you looking for an opportunity to catch God doing something wrong? Are you, like our society does by and large right now, looking for an opportunity to prove that the Bible doesn't say what it means and mean what it says? Are you looking for an opportunity to shoot God down by looking for contradictions and differences and variations? Or are you looking for a way for God to express himself and build a credible Bible record through different people who were separated and weren't traveling around in a tour bus together. What is it you're looking for when you look in the scripture? Keeping in mind the idea that, yes, historical renderings of actual things that took place are not as scrutinized and not as perfected as they are these days, where anybody can pull a cell phone and take a video of a giraffe being fed. Back then, those standards were different. So what if God used different people, different perspectives, to show different sides of the same story in a way to, in the end, make it more believable, make it more credible? Is that possible? And ask yourself the question, would God be smart enough to pull something like that off over 1,500 years through dozens and dozens of Bible writers, all writing about the same Messiah, Jesus? I should take a look at this really quick. There's a quote in the book called The Case for Christ written by Lee Strobel, um, a lawyer, journalist, who was an atheist and became a believer through his research trying to disprove the Bible witness of Christianity. Uh, there's a quote in there by Hans Steer that goes, 
Every historian is especially skeptical at that moment when an extraordinary happening is only reported in accounts which are completely free of contradictions. In other words, contradictions actually lend to a story's credibility by the fact that they come through humans who do not copy each other's eyewitness account. Do you understand where this is going? That God can use separate people in separate walks of life to tell one story miraculously and put just enough variation in there to show that he's still very much in control. Think of it this way. The last time you worked a puzzle, you might have gotten two different puzzle pieces that had the exact same shape. But if you look at those specific puzzle pieces, do you see the exact same graphics on them? No. And then when you put the puzzle together, you can still see that puzzle piece with that one little graphic, that one little picture or snapshot of the whole on it, right? But you can't see the big picture until you do what? Finish the puzzle. That's kind of like what we're saying here. What we're saying here is that these historical accounts and these variations and a la contradictions actually come together to form a picture of a more perfectly crafted document than people could have done had they merely copied from each other. Does this make sense to folks? You see what God's doing with this? Uh, let me show you another uh, piece of scripture here. From 2 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says, We also have the prophetic message, the message of prophecy, right? As something completely reliable, Peter says. And you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, what is he talking about at the end? The day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's talking about the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. Now, it could be the coming of Jesus to you as you believe in him and trust in him, right? But it could also refer to Jesus coming again, the second coming on the clouds, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, right? What is Peter saying? He's saying, if you need to see God, and you need to see the credibility of God and the power of his word, then look in the scripture and trust that it is reliable. Trust that it not only has historical and poetic and wisdom meaning, but trust that it also speaks into your life and grows faith in you. And there is no corner of scripture, there is no part of scripture anywhere that cannot stand up to scrutiny. No human being can disprove the veracity of the Bible. People have tried. And in the end, what happens? The reliability of the Bible stands. We can trust it. We can believe God through it. We can see Jesus at work in the Bible. And when someone presents to you the idea that the Bible is full of contradictions, you can say, maybe so, but here's why. The Bible is not merely a copied piece of literature. The Bible is beautifully, wonderfully, 
articulately made through different people in different walks of life so that the power and credibility of the one story of Jesus would shine through it. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me some comfort. As I look at the second part of this reading from Peter, Peter says this, Above all, you must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things happening. And this is a key one here. It says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human and not God, prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to be carried along by the Holy Spirit? It means to be so informed by God's Spirit, so captured by God's Spirit, that the things that we think and say and do copy and carry along after what God does. It doesn't mean that we are God. It means that God is God and we aren't. It means that we are his beloved children and that we simply follow him where he goes. This Father's Day, I want to throw out a little thank you to the fathers in the room. And I want to throw out a little thank you to our Heavenly Father, excuse me, our Heavenly Father, for showing us how to follow. And I want to show you a little something to illustrate that. As I narrate it for the podcast, focus on what you see. That's what little kids do. Watch this. Remember, when your kids wanted to be just like you, Before they came along, you walked your own path. You didn't always make the best choices but they were your choices. And then you met her. And they showed up. And they started following you. Everywhere. Suddenly, it mattered where you were going. Because you want for them more than anything to find the Father's path and walk it with you. forever.
This is the heart of God as a father. And it is his heart for you and me. And this is why he writes his scriptures the way he does. So that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt where to go. He leads and we follow. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for showing the way. Thank you for following your Father, who is now our Heavenly Father. Thank you for giving us a forever. Thank you for giving us a path. And his name is Jesus. Thank you for giving us a person to believe in, one who never fails. And thank you for giving us a way to discover him in the Bible. God, as we dive in and follow Jesus as fathers and as children of fathers, show us how you, as the perfect heavenly father, have always been in control through your great love and always will be so that we may trust in you and place all of our hearts with you. We praise you and trust you and believe in you as we lift your name high. In your name we pray, amen and amen.